I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. In This Will Be My Undoing, Morgan Jerkins interrogates what it means to be, to live as, to exist as, a black woman today. Black women are doubly disenfranchised by race and gender. They are objectified, silenced, and marginalized with devastating consequences, and even these effects are rarely considered in our conversations on inequality. In essays both personal and critical, Morgan's voice fills this dialogue gap. Fans of Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist will not want to miss Morgan's book, this Will Be My Undoing is on sale January 30th in paperback original from our imprint Harper Perennial. All right, so today on the phone with us we have Morgan Jerkins, author of the essay collection This Will Be My Undoing. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We have a lot to talk about, and it's kind of especially relevant that we're talking the day after, in some respects, of the recent Alabama Senate special election. So we'll get to that and sort of how, how aspects of that tie into to themes that ta- are talked about in your essay collection. So it's a debut collection. The title is honestly one of my favorite titles ever of, of a book. So why, why is it called This Will Be My Undoing? What, what does the this refer to? I think the this refers to the book itself. Um, there's so many things in the book that I wanted to reveal that I hadn't revealed as elsewhere, whether it was to family and friends or via the internet. Because I started my freelance career, my writing career professionally, uh, freelancing online. So there were certain topics that I get into, whether it's like respectability politics or whether it's sexuality, where I knew that I couldn't just write 2,000 or 250 words. I needed the the space of a book in order to really dig into these very taboo subjects. Mm -hmm. And so when I thought about the title, I was a little bit nervous about it because I thought it sounded extremely ominous. Um, (laughs) This will be my undoing sounds like a, like a warning or something like that. But I, I decided to stick with it. And because of the encouragement of my agent and acquiring editor, um, who told me that the title was good because I'm, have to unlearn and unpack and undo things and have to dissect it layer by layer. So basically the book is an investigation of what it means to be a black woman, starting from being a black girl and how do I reckon with that and how do I evolve and what are the ways in which I become conscious of my identity, even though consciousness is not a linear path, and I explain that very vividly in the book how jagged that journey can be. Yeah, and and one of the things that thematically I think is interesting throughout the different essays in in the book is the theme of visibility, whether you're Mm -hmm. talking about um, seeing yourself and making other people see you or or, um, seeing black women in popular culture um, or seeing Mm -hmm. just black women walking around in in the street. So why Mm -hmm. do you think visibility is such a driving force behind many, if not all, of the essays in your collection? 
I think because there are many different ways to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was thinking about, for example, the first essay, um, which was probably one of the hardest essays I've ever written, period. I wanted to be seen, but not as myself, not as a black girl, because I didn't know I was black. I knew phenotypically that I was different from other people, but it wasn't until I was in a space that I was extremely, extremely marginalized and forgotten about that I subconsciously tried to make the effort to be seen as a white girl mm-hmm. because I knew how coveted they, they were. I knew how visible they were. Um, so there are many different times in the book where it's like, it's answering the question or just posing the question of how does one, how is one seen and how is, how does that become difficult when you're trying to live um, and you're trying to live as expansively as you can, but you keep on having these barriers and you're not sure if it's, if you're being paranoid about it or if it's really a part of the world. And I think that is an undertone that I hope that people pick up on throughout the book Mm -hmm. is that even in the ways that you want to create the secret space for yourself in order to, you know, to to have self-care, when you want to be seen, how do you be seen when you you have to carry these hurtful memories, um, these past traumas, and do you just get rid of them? And if you don't get rid of them, when you carry them, how do you still be seen in all of your contradictions? and all of your hypocrisies. Because I think that a lot of times black women aren't allowed to be those type of people in their own narratives and in other people's narratives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that first essay that you talk about is an essay called Monkeys Like You, and that's a reference to something that that someone called you uh, when you Mm -hmm. were trying out for for a cheerleading squad. And one of the things that you say um, in the essay, you talk about feminism and contemporary feminism, you say, but the fight to empower all women under the veil of feminism has historically and presently centered white women. The word all switches to whiteness as the default. And that's something that I think is is true. uh, And that's something Mm -hmm. that I think we have seen played out in society. So I guess one question that I have for you about that is what do you think feminism needs to learn from women of color um, whether they be black women of color or, or Asian women of color or Latino women of color, what does feminism need to learn from from these women to make feminism mean every woman? Right. Well, first thing I want to say is like for the monkeys, like you, I say the, the girl who told me, you know, I didn't make the children squad because, you know, they only have monkeys on the team. She was actually a, a girl of color herself. She was Filipina, and so that's what made it even worse because she was a Filipino who right. ingratiated herself with a lot of black people, and yet at the moment when we're arguing, she sort of wept, she sort of used that my blackness against me, mm-hmm. um, which made it even worse. Um, but I think when it comes to feminism, I'm just tired of. Me personally, I'm tired of black women specifically being footnotes on large achievements. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we have this notion of black women, they save us all the time, but we don't want to always have to save everyone. Mm-hmm. And why is it that we always have to look out for other people, but no one looks out for us? Right. And why is it that we always have to carry the load? And I think that's something that I want to emphasize is that you know, black women 
particularly, we always have to be cognizant of white women, white people, whether or not they're in front of us. It doesn't matter. We're always aware, hyper aware of them. They don't have to be aware of us until after the fact, until someone pushes it in their face. And so I think what feminism is missing is just the acknowledgement and and redistribution of resources to help support black women as well as other women of color. Um, I think that is particularly important and that's why I made sure I said that in the beginning because it's like there's so much work to be done and I hope that my book will add to the conversation. It can't be the end all be all, Mm -hmm. um, but I do hope that it will add to the already pre-existing discourse surrounding feminism and uh, womanism and so on and so forth. Yeah, because, you know, when you were talking just now about the idea of of black women sort of having to carry this burden of saving saving everyone else from themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, t- today, um, where, where we, if we think about the results of the Alabama Senate race, right, um, it was mm-hmm. once again particularly black women that, that saved, uh, saved Alabama from, from electing Roy Moore um, because mm-hmm. black women once again sort of carried, carried that burden. Right, and, and it's weird because you know what? It's like... It's almost as if we live in two different realities. Okay. I think the thing that a lot of people were talking about um, on the internet yesterday, on Twitter specifically about the election, was that the election, it shouldn't have been that close. Mm -hmm. I personally chose to celebrate because I I just wanted to have a moment of relief before we get into the breakdown of statistics. And when I saw the breakdown of those stats, I was like, we are exactly where we were in November 2016. Mm -hmm. Why is it that the vast majority of black women who voted voted for the proper candidate, but the rest, especially white women, voted for a, a candidate that goes directly against their interests. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that, that, that I don't understand is that I think that's the part that hurts me the most, even though, you know, I, you know, time and time again, I've known better is that I don't understand why white women would want to vote for, and I'm sorry I'm getting really political. (laughs) I'm 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 sorry, I don't know why a white woman would want to vote for a man who has been accused of child molestation, who is, you know, uh, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not pro-choice. He believe he doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. He, you know, he believe he believes that every amendment past the tenth one should be forgotten about, which includes slavery. Mm-hmm. So, and it's like after all that you've been taught about, you've been shown about this man. You still want to vote for him, but he doesn't even think you should have the right to vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, and that's the part that, does, that I don't get. It's like for white women specifically, it's like, why do you keep laying down your lives for these issues that directly go against your interests? And I think the answer is because they think their whiteness will protect them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the protection of and that's white supremacy. It's, it's they think their whiteness just protects them, and so that's. That's the thing. It's like I'm. I'm really happy that Doug Jones won. I'm, I'm exuberant, um, 
But I think it's just really sad that every time the statistics come out, it's always black women who are ahead in terms of who should be the better candidate. And not just because of political views, because on a moral, from a moral lens, mm-hmm. why would you want to vote for somebody who's been accused of molesting little girls? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about two famous or perhaps famous and infamous um, black women that you talk about in particular. We'll start with, uh, you know, I'm not going to go too far out on a limb, I don't think, by saying it might be your favorite, your favorite black woman. So on a scale of of one to ten, how much do you love Michelle Obama? Uh, (laughs) Um, I would say I would say a ten in the way that I can love her from what I know of her. Right, right. Because I don't know her personally, but I think that all that I've seen of her, I would say a ten. So you talk, you have an entire essay devoted to, it's it's a letter to um, to Mrs. Obama. Um, uh, you share a Princeton connection with her. And you talk in that letter a lot about how she was presented through the lens of, of the media and also of popular culture, of course, with the New mm-hmm. Yorker, the New Yorker mm-hmm. cartoon. Um, and sort of the antithesis of that representation is... Um, uh, Rachel Dozel, who, mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who is who is a woman who um, performs a racial identity. I think it's fair to say um, with which she was not born, and and through her performance, she became an object of, from my point of view anyway, personally, a kind of bizarre sort of intellectualization. How can we reconcile these two? Is there a way to reconcile these two sort of uh, images that we have of these two prominent women? Um, I think when it comes to Rachel Dolezal, the only reason why she should be brought up is to just show how incorrect and offensive she is. Okay. That's the only thing. Like, I think when it comes to her, this whole conversation of transracialism and... You know, it's like it, it, it's disrespectful mm-hmm. um, and it's something that like I believe that she should be studied, not in the sense of like, you know, for potential praise, but just for showing why she did what she did, showing that it's not original at all and it's just reinforcing right supremacy. Uh, so I think when I was talking about Rachel Dolezal, it's like. It was it was very difficult because it's like you know people are like why can't she be black if she chooses to be it's like because I can't choose to be right a lot of what happened a lot of what happens with race it's past, I mean obviously race is a social construct um, but it's passed down from your parents mm-hmm. it's how you're racialized how people see you how you're marginalized um, it's not just as easy as putting on. Uh, darker foundation and a kinky wig and I think that's what people have to understand Um, especially in this country where you know decades ago centuries ago you only had had one drop of African blood and you were considered considered black Mm -hmm. so it all has to do with your family and your community and and so I think when we think about these two women it's to show someone who's actually a black woman and show someone who tried to be a counterfeit yeah to show the offensiveness tied to that Mm -hmm. yeah because she made it rachel made it seem um as if identity were somehow 
malleable, but if if we believe that, then then that also operates from a place of privilege because some people can do that and some people, as you said, very very much cannot. Right, and that's the thing. So a lot of people were like. Um, what about, you know, when people decide to change their gender? Mm -hmm. And I will just say this, like, I, I'm not trans. Um, so I can't, I can't speak for that experience. But I think what I want to say is I can't pass, like, you're, like, you can't pass down a gender. Mm -hmm. Like, gender is a social concept. I can give birth to a boy. Okay, but I can't give birth to a 100% Asian child. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was like, well, how are we having this conversation? Because if I, and I even I use an analogy in the book, if I go outside and I get a really high shade of foundation and I put on a long wig, I will be right in Harlem and everybody will look at me as kin. They will not look at me and say that as a white woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. Thing, it's like, and so that's the hard thing. It's like I thought it was very offensive to those who do identify as trans and those who are just people of marginalized background. Period. Mm -hmm. Racially speaking, to to say that oh, you know, race is, you know, this is, you know, identities can be malleable because for many people it's not. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, and that, and that's what the thing I think was missing. It's like, why is it that all of a sudden we think identity is malleable because a white woman's doing it? Right. Mm -hmm. Never, it's never brought up in intellectual intercourse of a black person's identity being malleable in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially if you think about someone like Michelle Obama and how she, she very much, um, cultivated an image of, of a woman who was very strong, very independent, very secure in her marriage. She, she, she did all of the right things and yet still people made, some people made her into a horrible grotesque of herself. Mm hmm Exactly. Exactly. It's like when anybody other than a black woman tries to be a black woman, then we start to intellectualize them and we give them a lot of press. But when black women are unapologetically black, mm -hmm. that's when we're likened to animals. That's yeah. when um, we, we, we're, we're, you know, ignored or just dehumanized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And amidst all of this, one of the last essays in This Will Be My Undoing is called How to Survive a Manifesto on Paranoia and Peace. And it really talks about a strong neediness and a strong sort of, uh, a strong desire that you advocate for people taking care, especially uh, women of color taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Why is that self-valuation so essential to you as a person? And why do you see it as something that is so, that should be so essential to other women of color? Um, I will say because it's very hard to look out for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to, to black girls and women, particularly black women, of course, adult black women, we're conditioned to be the tillers of our community. Um, we, A lot of us, not all of us, because I can't speak for all of us, but many of us are internalized being strong a lot. Um, and there's times where we need to rest. I will speak personally for myself. I've been horrible 
at self-care for the majority of my life. I didn't start getting into self-care for maybe like a year, year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And it's because I just never thought I deserved it. I always felt like I had to be working. I felt like if I wasn't producing anything, I wasn't a value, which also ties to capitalism, which Mm -hmm. is a whole other um, conversation. But I think it's important to have these mantras and to have these things for yourself where you say, you know what, today I'm going to celebrate me. Before I do something else, I have to reaffirm myself and constantly push myself to center myself because there's so many spaces and avenues where I'm not even thought of mm-hmm. until I have to do something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. to make the conscious decision to be the center. And that was also an exercise for me, even in writing the book. Um, I was very thankful to uh, to work with editors uh, who were very keen on me not psychologically cutting corners, especially for the more, the more difficult essays, which was helpful, but sometimes I didn't notice it because I was just not used to centering myself so deeply and vividly um, and have so much space to do it. Um, so that's what I think is the most important thing is, is I think for me, it was that writing that essay was not only a helpful help others, but it was helping me um, as well to make sure that we center ourselves because no one else is going to do it for us. What do you think that did for your writing process and for you as a writer? Do you think do you think it was super helpful? Do you think that it initially was a bit of an obstacle for you to overcome? It was a bit of an obstacle. I think for some of the essays where I was writing about um, dating, um, when I was writing about you know, trying out the cheerleading squad and respectability politics and assimilation, it was hard to go there because I was afraid of someone abandoning me too soon. Um, but I had to tell myself, if you aren't feeling that initial shock, then you're not going hard enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to go there because if you don't, if you sanitize these memories, then you're doing a disservice not only to yourself, and but you're also disserv- you're also providing you're also giving a disservice to your potential readers. And I also told myself like I only have one time for a debut, so I better make it good. <laughs> I don't want to look at a I don't I don't want to look at a copy of my book and I'm like man I could have gone harder mm-hmm. and I didn't. So even when I look at all of the chapters that I've written, there's not a single chapter where I said man I could have gone harder. You did you did go hard in these essays. I was very, one of the things that I was very impressed with um, throughout the essay collection was your willingness to be so honest and lay yourself so bare. And I think maybe maybe that made me also like the title so much more than I already did. But it really is an impressively, impressively raw and, and emotionally honest and, and real set of essay collection, I think. Thank you. You're very, Thank you so you're, much. You're very welcome. <laughs> so we just have one more question for you, and it is a question that we ask all of our guests on this podcast. Um, since okay. it's primarily geared towards teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Man, <laughs> that is a tough one. Wow. It's, I mean... 
K through twelve or just high school? Any or? I mean anyone. We had we had I talked to Wiley Cash a few months ago and he literally listed like five of his favorite teachers from high school through college and graduate school. So Okay. Um I my last term of my uh, time at Bennington MFA program, I worked with Alexander Chi, um, and it was amazing. And, and because I, I've known him, I knew of him. Sorry, uh, through circles, literary circles, because I live in New York. Mm-hmm. But I was always afraid to go up to him at parties. <laughs> so when I found out that he was going to be at um, when I found out he was going to be at Bennington, I, I requested that he be my instructor, and I got him. And it was just a pleasure working with him. It was right around the time where he was he was preparing for his uh, sophomore novel, uh, Queen of the Night, mm-hmm. and he was amazing. He, he, he gave me words about my writing that I will always go back to. You know, I think for every writer, we have those moments where we're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this. Like, I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can do this, but he made me realize that I do have talent, um, that even if I there's some work to do, that there is something there. And I'll always cherish what he's done for me. Uh, when I think about my time at Princeton, I had to write a thesis, a junior paper uh, for my junior year, of course, and our senior thesis. For my junior year, I worked with a woman named Dr. Carol Emerson, who is the, she's the preeminent, she's like the preeminent scholar of Slavic languages and literature. So mm-hmm. anyone you know that is in that department, they will tell, they know who she is. And again, like, it, I just, I think about how lucky I am to have worked with so many incredible people. I could just go to their office and say, hey, I'm writing this thing. And she was another one who saw the type of research that I wanted to do. I was comparing um, uh, Gogol's nose to Kurosawa uh, Akutagawa. He's a, sorry, excuse me, Runosuke Akutagawa. He's a Japanese author. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a story called Nose as well. And so my background in uh, Princeton, at Princeton, was comparative literature. So it was a focus on Russian and Japanese literature, which I thought was almost, was not good. <laughs> but I didn't think I was going to find anyone that was going to encourage me to keep with that connection. And she did. Mm-hmm. She did. She called my junior paper unusual, but she gave me, a, she gave me an A or an A minus <laughs> on it. So I felt like I succeeded. And I was just lucky as well to work with her and for her to not say that, you know, you're a little bit too ambitious for what you're trying to do. And so those two instructors stick out to me the most as those who, as those who were like, who reminded me that I can be as imaginative as I can in finding the intersections of certain things. Um, I'm gonna have to work hard, but they didn't. They made. They didn't. Nev- they never made me feel like my mind was too much for the material out there in the world. That's great. That's great. <laughs> well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Excellent. Okay.